Now, if you have been with us, and especially if you're with us last Sunday, we began uh, talking about intercessory prayer. That the Lord Jesus Christ, in that passage that we have been reading in Luke and chapter 11, he introduces his disciples. Remember that they had asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And then um, after having gone through the Lord's prayer, as is known, or the disciples' prayer, he then begins to teach them and uh, he introduces this idea that we must not only be content to pray for ourselves, we should be a people who are concerned to pray for our brothers and sisters. That those of us who have the opportunity to be leaders, we should be praying for our members constantly. And those of us who are members, we should be praying for our elders and praying for our brothers and sisters, praying for one another. This is a, a crucial part of our lives as Christian people to learn to pray for others. And then uh, last week we were looking in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 9, all the way up to verse 12. And in there we have a very excellent example of the Apostle Paul who was praying for the Christians in Colossae. And he was not content just to pray that God bless the Christians in Colossae, that he actually goes into all kinds of detail with respect to their spiritual needs as he remembers them in prayer. And so we looked at the passage and do hope that the Lord will help us as we pray for one another to use the words of the apostle to pray for ourselves and to pray for other Christians. Now this morning, uh, I want to give us a second example of the Apostle Paul. He is praying this time for the Ephesians, not the uh, Colossians only, but you'll find that this was his actual practice. So this morning I want to invite you to read with me in Colossians, rather Ephesians chapter 1, and beginning at verse 15. That is one of the prayers of the Apostle Paul to, for the Ephesian Christians. So let's read together that passage, and then we will get down to a consideration of the things that we can learn in that passage. So the Apostle says there, For this reason... I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation 
in the full knowledge of him so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and sitting him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is the Apostle Paul praying for the Ephesians. And what I intend to do this morning is just to give you a brief overview of those many details that the Apostle Paul brings to our attention as he is praying for the Ephesians. Now, I mean, if I were to take the passage and exhaustively preach this, we would definitely be here for four hours. And I do not have such an intention uh, to keep you that long here. My prayer is to give you some real helpful pointers that uh, you can use in your own prayer life, that I can use in my own prayer life, that we can learn from the seasoned apostle, perhaps the greatest Christian that ever lived, the Apostle Paul, here he is in prayer. Now, the first thing you notice, he says in verse 15, for this reason, that's the first thing. And the inevitable question is, what is the reason? And the reason is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, up to verse 14. That is the reason why he is beginning to pray. Now, the apostle, in that passage, and uh, in Greek they say that, that that statement is all one statement. There is no full stop. From verse 3 all the way up to verse 14. That is when you find the full stop. So there is a, a lot that the Apostle Paul is telling and teaching the Ephesian Christians. And he says then, in the light of what I've been saying to you, now I want to pray for you. But also notice that he not only says for this reason, he goes on to say, I have heard two things about you. The first that I have heard about you is that I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as a result of that, I have also heard of your love 
towards all saints or all other Christians. In other words, as far as the Apostle Paul, this report that he heard, the people kept coming to him and telling him what had happened to the Ephesians, that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have unmistakable love for all other Christians, was a proof that there was a work of God in the hearts and lives of his people. And because there was a work of God in the lives of his people, we find that the Apostle Paul, he is saying all these things. He is conducting, as it were, his prayer time in a context of thanksgiving to God. He is saying, I am thankful because of what God is doing amongst you. He says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all other Christians. I do not cease to give thanks for you. And the reason I do not give thanks, do not cease to give thanks, because I know that God, through the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at work among you. And the proof of that is your faith in Jesus Christ and how that faith is expressed as you show love to other Christians. And remember, the Apostle Paul is saying these things while he was incarcerated. He was in jail. And yet, despite the fact that his freedom has been curtailed, he, would, uh, he was allowed as a prisoner to receive visitors. And the many visitors that he received, they brought this good news. And this made the Apostle Paul a man who was thankful. He was thankful even though he was in chains. He was thankful even though he was in prison, held on account of preaching the gospel. He did not matter to him. He was thankful that the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was spreading far and wide. And amongst the Ephesian Christians, there was evidence of the work of God. And that makes the Apostle Paul thankful. He was a thankful man. He was a grateful man. And the very first thing then that I want to emphasize as we think about the example of the Apostle Paul in prayer is that we must learn as Christians to be a thankful people. Christians are people who are thankful. And they are thankful because they know that this world is owned by their father. The circumstances that surround your life, whether they are positive or negative, all those circumstances, they have not come by accident. They have not come just because there are evil and wicked men in this world. Those circumstances have come in your life 
at the appointment of your loving and heavenly father. And that he has sent those circumstances not to harm you. No, because you remember how elsewhere the Apostle Paul says that all things, not just good things, not just nice things, not just the things you like, all things, he says, will work together for your good and for the glory of God our Father. That is why as Christian people, we must be thankful. We are thankful because our God reigns. Amen. We are thankful because he is not just God. He is our heavenly Father. Amen. He has sent his spirit into our hearts so that we can cry, Abba, Father, that there is that relationship between God and ourselves, that we are not just speaking of a God who is out there. We are speaking of God who in Christ has become our Father. And so that is why the Apostle Paul is a thankful man. He's thankful because he knows that the gospel of Christ has inverted the lives of the Ephesians. The gospel of Christ has conquered. And if you read in the book of Acts, it was in this place called Ephesus that a large group of people brought those books that they had been using for magic and for sorcery, and they burnt them because they now believed in Jesus Christ, the one sent and crucified on a cross to save sinners. And so the gospel had transformed their lives. And the Apostle Paul is a thankful man. Now, not only is he thankful, he tells us that he is actually praying for them. And he goes as far as to let us know what exactly he is praying for as he is thinking about them. Now, it's very interesting that the things that the Apostle Paul is praying for are very, very unique. Now, for instance, he is not praying for their healing. Maybe they were not sick. But we don't see him praying anything near like that. And then also, uh, he, he is not praying that maybe, you know, in those days they, were, they had horses. That maybe they should have new horses for transportation. Perhaps they didn't need horses. They already had them. Or that they should have a job. Perhaps they already had jobs. But look at the kind of things that the Apostle Paul is bringing to the Lord before them. And by the way, I am not implying you shouldn't pray for anything that's uh, physical. But the point I'm making here is look 
just at the, the thinking in, in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he remembers to pray for these people. He says then in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, the very first thing that the Apostle Paul is concerned to bring before God in prayer as he thinks about the Ephesians is that they might have more and more experiential knowledge of Christ. They might know Christ. Now he uses here the, the, the words that he uses are actually that the father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now there are so many uh, if you go to the commentaries, there's so many things they say about that statement. But the basic idea is using the word spirit in the way in which we say attitude. You might have an attitude or you might have a disposition of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Now obviously, you cannot have that kind of disposition or that kind of revelation apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your own life and soul. So he uses those words, but ultimately what he's asking for is that, yes, these are people who he has heard about, about their faith, about their love, but he wants them to know there is so much more that you need to know from Christ. And he is praying that they might grow in their knowledge, in their understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. In other words, he is praying for their spiritual priorities. And he's basically saying, Make this your priority in life, to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to increase in knowing him, and to have that knowledge of him, which is not just head knowledge, but experiential knowledge, a knowledge that includes a love and devotion for Christ. But this is what they should be concerned about. And that is what he is praying. That there will be a revelation to their hearts of who and what the Lord Jesus Christ is. And a growing in that knowledge. A growing in their love and devotion to Jesus Christ who is revealed in the gospel. That is the prayer 
of the Apostle Paul. That this is what he seeks the Father on behalf of the Ephesians. That they will more and more become preoccupied with Christ. More and more obsessed with Christ. More and more loving and living for Christ. That the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you can see more of who and what Christ is. That you will put a premium. You will put the emphasis. You will make this your most important duty in your life as a Christian to know more of Christ. Now, up to that point, then beginning in verse 18, he gives us three reasons why he is praying like that. He mentions that he wants them to grow in the knowledge of Christ, having their eyes enlightened, that they may then from that point he gives us three things that he wants them to be aware of as a result of praying for them that way. And the first thing he says, if you notice there, having your, the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know, first of all, what is the hope to which he has called you. And then secondly, what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In other words, to put it simply, the three things that the Apostle Paul is praying for is that they might know fully the hope to which God in Christ has called them. That's the first thing. Now, the word hope is a very important word in the New Testament because the Bible again and again will mention that word, hope. And so the question then that we need to ask ourselves is what does that mean? So in the New Testament, the word hope doesn't mean what we mean in our ordinary usage of the word. You know, when we talk about I'm hoping for something, it basically means I am not sure. Uh, you know, under the best of circumstances, hopefully this is what is going to happen, but I'm not really sure. In the Bible, it's the exact opposite. When the Bible uses the word hope, it means this is what God in Christ has promised and this is what will finally come to pass. And here, what the Apostle Paul is letting us know is that 
there is an ultimate purpose why God has called you. There is an ultimate purpose why God has called me. And what is that ultimate purpose why God has called you and me? There are many passages that speak to that, but I think the best one that will give us an answer is Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Notice here what the Apostle Paul says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he the first, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the ultimate purpose for the call of God, according to Romans 8, is conformity to Christ. That is God's goal in calling you through the gospel. It is to work in your life in such a way that morally speaking, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the hope. The other way or the other verse that speaks to this, I think, is in First John and chapter 3. It says exactly uh, the same thing, but in his own words. First John and chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then you notice in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him, that's the same word we are talking about, purifies himself as he is pure. So in terms of God's ultimate purpose, when he calls us out of the life of sin and translates us into the kingdom of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the ultimate purpose for his call. Absolute conformity to Christ. In other words, he is calling us to live a holy life. He is calling us to live a godly life. 
He is calling us to live a life in which the fruit of the Spirit is increasing day by day. That's the ultimate purpose of God. That's the ultimate reason why the Son came into this world, went to the cross to die for a people who are zealous for good works, the Bible tells us elsewhere, who are eager to do what is good, who are growing in conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, my friends, is what we should be actually praying for for ourselves every single day that we might become more like Christ, that we might live lives in which Christ is more and more magnified. He is seen in our lives by those who look at us. They might be able to see something of Christ outworking in us in a world that is ungodly, in a world that is totally sinful. God is working. Christ is working. The hope of that calling for us is ultimate conformity to Christ. But there's a second one. He says there in verse 18, when our eyes, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, that we have a spiritual understanding of who and what Christ is, that then we begin to see more and more the hope to which God in the gospel has called us. But then secondly, he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the sense? Now, that's very interesting because if you just go back a few verses to verse 11, he does talk about an inheritance, but in that, in that uh, instance, in verse 11, he says, in him, in Christ, we as Christians have obtained an inheritance. Here, in verse 18, he is praying that we might be able to realize the riches of his glorious inheritance in the sense. In other words, that the reason why God has saved us is that we have been transformed and made his inheritance. That he wants us to realize we no longer belong to ourselves or to anybody else. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says, we have been bought with a price. We are no longer ourselves to live this life anywhere we like. We are God's property purchased at a great cost to himself, to his son who shed his blood. Having become his property, we are then to recognize our new identity and live in this world in the light of that identity. 
there's something that reminds us about this in the Old Testament. You remember in the Old Testament, once the children of Israel left Egypt, they got to the promised land, and the land was being shared to all the tribes. There was one tribe that was not given any land, the tribe of Levi. And they were told, your inheritance is God. And that is the final outworking of the purpose of God in calling a people out of this world that they are now God's very own possession. God's very own people. They belong to God. The Apostle Peter says something like that. A holy nation. A new people. This is the way you are to look at yourself. If you're a Christian today, remember, you are no longer your own. You belong to God. You are God's property. And you are supposed to show that identity in the way you live. But let me ask them to the third one. And that is in verse 19. The reason why the Apostle Paul is praying for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know Christ, that our eyes, the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened so that we truly understand what it means that Christ is our Savior. The reason he's praying that is that so that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, here he is talking about God's power. And he uses two words, greatness and immeasurable. So the power that he's talking about is God's power, and he tells us it's great. But he also tells us you cannot measure it. That's how Great the power of God is. It is not measurable. But then he gives us a hint of how we can know that power. He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. If you want to have an idea the kind of power we are talking about, it is that power which God exerted when he raised his son from the grave not only just raising him, ascended him into heaven and where he is sat at the right hand of the majesty on high, reigning as supreme lord and governor of the entire universe. And what he is saying is this. That same power is what is working in your life if you're a Christian. That power that God 
exerted in raising Jesus from the dead, ascending him to heaven, make him seated at the right hand. That is the power working in you if you're a Christian. Now, if you think about it, you might say to yourself, really? I don't feel that power. To the contrary, I feel weak. I feel overwhelmed. Well, I want you to know, you need to believe that power that God exerted in raising his son from the dead, that is the power working in your life right now. And it is in this sense then that you must understand Philippians chapter 4 where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is that power working in all people who are Christians that is able to strengthen you. Now, there are lots of implications for all those statements that we have made this morning. But perhaps the most important one, that we have no excuse to be living a mediocre kind of Christian life. That we have no excuse to be living, as it were, in the shallows and miseries of this life. But what God calls you and me to is to live a dynamic Christian life. Because it is God's power that's working in your life. It's God's power that is at work in your life. That means also that you have no excuse to serve the Lord because God's power is working in you. Don't give excuses why you can't do A, B, or C for the Lord because the power comes from God. And he is working in your life if you are a believer this morning. That power that raised Jesus from the dead that took him all the way to the highest station in the universe, that power is at working in you. You need to believe that and to look to God that that power will continue to the practical outworking of the Christian life that you live more and more like the Lord. That you will be able to break every habit of sin because the power of God is working in your life. That there is nothing that we as Christian people, we cannot have unresolved conflict, conflict as long as we are listening to God's word because God's power is at work in our lives. 
This is what the Apostle Paul was praying for. That they might know God's power. Now, let me just say this. The Bible does talk about the power of God being exhibited in the world. For instance, we can go back to Genesis and talk about God's power when he created the world. That is a display of his power. He spoke and it came into being. Or we can speak about God's power as it is displayed in his providential care of the world. Remember, for instance, when the children of Israel have been rescued from Egypt and they are before the Red Sea, God's power was displayed in the parting of the Red Sea and the children of Israel walked on dry ground. But what the Apostle Paul is saying to us here in Ephesians that there is a very unique display of God's power. And that power is displayed when Jesus is raised from the dead, ascends to the throne, and sits at the throne, right hand of the throne of God on high. That is the most unique display of power. And it is so unique because it tells us that is the power that's working in your life. That's the power that raised you from spiritual death and made you to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's the power that's working. That is what has transformed you and made you a child of God. My friends, there's no greater blessing than to know the power of Almighty God is working in my life. And that's what I want to encourage you this morning. Remember, this is not an ideology, this is not a philosophy or an idea. This is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead, seated at the highest throne in the entire universe. And that same power in his train is what raises all Christians from spiritual death into spiritual life. That's the same power. No wonder John says somewhere, don't be afraid because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You remember the story of Elisha with his servant. And then the servant of Elisha woke up and he discovered they were surrounded by the Syrian army. And he was afraid. And he goes to Elisha and Elisha is calm. He is not afraid at all. And he prays. He says, Lord, open his eyes 
And the Lord answered Elisha's prayer. He opened the eyes of that servant, and what does he see? The whole of heaven is on their side. There's no need for him to be afraid at all. And what's, that's what, in a sense, the Apostle Paul is praying for. That your eyes will be open to see the resources God has put at your disposal if you're a Christian today. Amen. God has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness. Says the Apostle Peter in order that we might share the divine nature. God is working. I said earlier, you might feel so helpless. You might feel so weak. You might feel overwhelmed with worry and anxiety for all sorts of reasons. But this morning I'm here to tell you, God has not abandoned. God's power is at work in your life if you're a Christian. There is no need for you to be anxious. There is no need for you to be full of worry that you can come and rest in the powerful arms of your heavenly father because his power, his power is at work in your life. This is the way to pray for your brothers and sisters. This is the way to pray for your elders. This is the way for your elders to pray for you. That God will open your eyes. God will work in your life that you might see the glorious riches of his inheritance in the sense. Immeasurable greatness of his power to all those who believe in Christ. Do not believe your feelings. Believe God's word. Even though you feel weak, you should say what the Bible says, that I am strong because God's power is at work in me. And remember to encourage one another to pray for one another with these words of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father in heaven, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And we thank you how from him we can learn to pray for ourselves, to pray for our brothers and sisters, to pray for other Christians using the words that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, was using in his prayers for the Ephesians. This morning, our Father, we pray that those things that the Apostle Paul was praying for, for the Ephesian Christians here in chapter 1, may those things be real and true in our experience here and now that the Lord Jesus Christ will be honored and exalted in our lives. We ask in his precious name, amen. amen.